In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm great. <laughs> we did it. Here we are. We did it. We're doing it, doing it and doing it. What? Wow. What has been your favorite part of the last week? Ooh, my favorite part of the last week. We had a two-day span where Harrison had no accidents in the oh, house. That's such an amazing feeling. When when Chess was really struggling with potty training, I thought about getting one of those like workplace things that's like, it's been zero days since our last accident. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels. It feels way more intense even. <laughs> yeah. And he's really new, so we're shocked. Um, we're shocked he's getting it I so, like that. He's so really quickly. new. He's he's a baby. What is that? There's a line from Buffy the Vampire Slayer that's one of my favorites that's about Anya where she says, Oh, uh, newly, um, it was in my grinder profile. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you uh, remember? That was your idea. It, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was something I'm oddly new and stra- strangely human and oddly, newly human. Newly human and strangely director. Newly human uh, and strangely. Oh. Newly human, strangely. I just like Anya. She's newly human and strangely literal. <laughs> There we go. Strangely literal. It's Willow talking, or no, it's it's Anya talking about how she thinks they talk about her behind her back. Yes. By the way, <laughs> if you have not listened to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or not listened to, watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> it is an amazing TV show. And Anya, I think Anya is one of my favorite characters from that show. Me too. Totally. I like I like with many old shows, and I've said this before. Haven't finished it yet. I haven't seen the last last season, but yeah, oh God, I love that show. Yeah. Anya's definitely a, a stellar, super <laughs> a stellar part of yeah. it. Yeah. What um I think my favorite episode is the episode where Buffy's oh maybe well the show's been out for thirty years the episode where Buffy's mom dies and Anya's like trying to process <sighs> what is happening and nobody's like explaining the human experience of death to her that's like one of the most heartbreaking monologues I think in the whole show. <sighs> is is that the the episode when like Buffy? wakes up and her mom is already dead or like the it's uh no where her mom actually dies she like comes home and her mom has had like a brain hemorrhage aneurysm yeah. oh yeah that's right yeah the, the episode where her mom dies is one Ugh. of my, probably one of my favorites too i just remember the moment when like buffy gets home and like finds her yeah. or, or maybe it's right afterwards they do this like like a high-pitched ringing sound i feel like yes there is no the background there's no music in the episode but you hear the like the sort of like what's going on with reality, like high pitch sound is sort of happening. Oh, it's so, oh my God, it's very impactful. Yes, it's, it's, I think I cry every time I watch that episode. It's a hard episode to watch. Yeah. Well, <laughs> start, Joy, starting off that? on a great uplifting <laughs> note. Do you have any uh, highs or lows for the week you wanted to share? Anything that stood oh, out? Oh God, I slept a lot last night, which is unheard of in in life with a puppy and so that was really great yeah that is great when you can actually sleep through the night yes my rare my mom took the all three dogs and so i was just had the the whole bed to myself i watched trixie mattel makeup videos and fell asleep (laughs) i had my humidifier i felt like it was in a rainforest it was very soothing uh that sounds like a spa experience you know what? to the max. I have to say, if you aren't sleeping with a humidifier that kind of like makes you feel like 
It, it really is like a weird soothing spa experience. I'm sure I do not need this much hydration in my air, but kind of, you know how you can feel <laughs> mist falling on you? Like you can feel it on mm-hmm. your skin. It's kind of like that periodically. And so it's very lush and tropical and, and spa feeling. So I, item number one, Matt, have you ever seen a ghost or had a um, ghosty experience? I've had ghosty feel experiences and I have a few ghost stories in my family. Ooh. Yeah. Any good ones? I think they're both pretty good. <gasps> Do you want to, are they long? Do you want to share any of them? I'll share, they're both, neither of them are too long, but together they'd be too long. So I'll share okay. one of them. Okay. Um, my, this is a story that's told to me from my mom and it's about her family when she was growing up. So in the house that they lived in, there was like basically all the bedrooms were upstairs of the kids and they came downstairs through the kitchen. Uh Uh-huh. And then through the kitchen was like the back door outside. Kind of like the nanny. (laughs) Kind of like the nanny, but I'm sure far less grand. (laughs) I was just thinking about how there was a staircase in the kitchen of the nanny and that was always kind of weird to me. Oh, I mean, they, they do that in Boy Meets World, too. Maybe it's a is maybe it's a more of an East Coast thing, like maybe. older older construction kind of stuff. I'd say so because I think multi level houses are even more East Coasty than yeah. here, yeah. more common. But in any event, the story is that for a while they were thinking that someone was trying to break into the house because oh. my grandmother, my mom's mother, was hearing noises downstairs in the night, and she started to like think, okay, maybe it's not someone breaking in because they sound like they're inside. But she thought maybe it's like her kids like going down and getting like food in the middle of the night, Uh something like that. And my grandmother, I'm just going to say my grandmother on my mom's side was not a very kind woman, especially (laughs) to her children. Okay. So she was like sneaking down in the night um, one time to like catch them. Oh yeah. And like punish them for being out of bed. Exactly. Yeah. What she normally would do would go downstairs, flip the light switch on and she would feel like a wind like someone just ran past her. Oh. You know? You know that feeling? Yeah. So she was like, oh, it's definitely one of my kids. So she's like, okay, this, I'm going to get them next time. So she goes down the steps. She does not turn the light switch on. She just starts, like, reaching around to grab to grab at something. Oh, yeah. And uh, when she turns the light switch, she doesn't have anybody. But she turns the light switch on, she had hair in her hand. Shut up. Oh, 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 oh my God. I literally <laughs> just got chills. Right? So, I mean, that's a pretty scary story. And my grandmother was a, she probably told tall tales, maybe. Yeah. I don't know how, how real it is, but it was very real to me when I heard it. And I will never forget that story. Ugh, that's creepy. <laughs> right? I, I don't have, I don't personally have a ghost story, but I brought it up. I, I need to talk for a couple of minutes about sinisterhood. So mm. I, I mentioned them a couple episodes ago or last episode about how they're a great podcast and you should be listening to them. And I stand by that. I have been just burning through their catalog. Number one, what I like about their podcast is it's not just true crime. Like they talk about just weird shit that sometimes mm. people can't explain or conspiracy theories or whatever. And they... They have sometimes talked about things like ghosts and stuff like that. So I was realizing, I'd never asked you if you had a ghost story before, but was curious. Mm -hmm. My only ghost story that I really love is my aunt and uncle live um, in this house that is like by the beach in Santa Barbara. And my uncle was at home alone. There was nobody else in the house. It's him, his wife, and their daughter. And neither his wife or his daughter were, were home, but he was in the kitchen and he 
made a sandwich for himself and he like made the sandwich, set it there on the counter, and then was like putting this the sandwich makings back in the fridge, right? So he like is packaging everything back up, goes and puts everything back in the fridge. And when he turns around, there is a bite out of his sandwich. No. And he even put it in a bag. He didn't touch it. He put it in a bag, waited for his wife to come home to show it to her. And be and they even like compared the teeth marks and they were not, they didn't match up to his teeth marks. Oh my God. And they, they've also had in that house, they've had a lot of like faucets that turn themselves on when nobody's <laughs> around. Oh my so God. Their house is this. for sure haunted, but that the bite out of the sandwich is my favorite ghost story. Oh, I have another ghost story in my family, but that's... Wait, is that's, that the aunt and uncle that I'm thinking of? Yes. So we've been there. Yes, we... Yeah, you've been to their house. You've been in the haunted even, house. I didn't even know it was haunted. <laughs> I would have brought all my amateur uh, you're, ghost... You're like a detector thingies that go like... <laughs> EMF yeah, the, detector. Yeah. Yeah, a light that just like randomly changes. Oh my God. Okay. So... I want to say, if you're a listener and you have a good ghost story, please email it to us because I would love to read your ghost stories. I don't like going on the internet and reading random, like random people's ghost stories, but somehow if you're listening to this and you feel interested in sending us a ghost story, please, 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 please send it in. I would love to read it. Maybe we'll read it on an episode. Oh, that would be so fun. The second thing I want to say is still about Sinisterhood, which they had and they had like a four episode. Sometimes they do multi episode on the same topic. And they had one. They had two of those kinds of stories where they did multiple episodes of them. One of them was about JFK. And it was so good. Like, I, I, I think I was too young to really... Well, obviously, I was too young. He died like 19 years before I was even born. But yeah. <laughs> but I had never, like, I remember my parents watching the JFK movie, but I didn't ever really watch it. So I had never really heard JFK's story very much before. Oh, my God. These four episodes of Sinisterhood where they talk about JFK are so engrossing because they talk about like the the Kennedy family curse they talk about um you know all of the theories of JFK's assassination and they even do like a specific episode all about like the conspiracy theories regarding his assassination it is fascinating and i bring it up because one of the theories relates to one of our old episodes oh so which one the episode where we talk about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa Mm-hmm. So one of the theories of why JFK was killed was, remember how he, when he became president, he appointed Bobby Kennedy as attorney general, and mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy really went after the mob. Right. So JFK was really kind of gunning for the mob. <laughs> it's maybe a bad analogy, but he was really going <laughs> after the mob. And he was also really concerned about the like growth and overreach of the CIA and how much power they had. And so one of the theories was once he appointed Bobby as attorney general and they started going after the mob, the mob and the CIA got together and were like, we need to take this guy out. And so wow. the, the like, per, one of the like really, I think commonly accepted theories is that the CIA and the mob either independently or together took him out. I had no idea. Isn't that fast? It was so interesting. So I know a lot of people probably are like, yeah, we know we've heard about JFK a million times. It was new to me. I thought it was really interesting. 
That's new to me. I've seen like a few things on TV about JFK, but that's really about it. They also had an amazing four-part series about JonBenet Ramsey. Oh, I would love to listen to that too. That was phenomenal. So again, a a really interesting case. And what I love, I didn't realize this when I first started listening to them. One of them is a lawyer. And so she periodically is like, just like throws out all of this knowledge about the legal system and how things work and why this would have happened. And it's just so, I love hearing that. Like, I'm like, oh, I never realized like that, 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 and that, and that could explain this and blah, blah, blah. So it's really interesting to hear her suddenly throw out a bunch of legal knowledge that is really relevant to these kinds of cases. So, yeah, I really like their rapport too. They just have like a really fun, easy conversational flow to them and it's it's like they go off on tangents every once in a while but like you're there with them and <laughs> yes you know i remember some of the early episodes i listened to were not episodic they were just like oh this looks like oh, an standalone topic yeah. you know yeah. so i would pick it instead of like how i usually do and they would talk about like some of their relatives and i'm like i don't know who this person is <laughs> like whatever but then when you listen from the beginning i'm like oh, oh yeah, yeah it's your brother-in-law yeah <laughs> <laughs> well now that I've rambled about ghosts and JFK. <laughs> should we uh, should we get into the episode? I'm ready. I'm okay. so ready. I'm I have to tell you that I think the true crime for this is really interesting, but I'm excited to hear your recap. I'm going to say I was glad to not have to recap this episode because I was like mm. I don't understand what they're saying. What are they doing? The oh my god. So f- full disclaimer, we watched this episode first last night okay and it was like it wasn't even very late we were a little bit high (laughs) and i swear i we the episode ended and i was like what happened yeah (laughs) like literally there was parts where i was like i'm seeing a character on the screen that i don't even know who he is is it the british guy the british guy and then later the 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 lawyer that just it oh, was yeah. never in the episode at all, and then there he was. Yeah. It was very confusing. So was very strange. Rewatched it this morning <laughs> with a cup of coffee instead. <laughs> and it made a little more sense. But still not much. <laughs> I I agree. It was a rough one. And it was oh my rough. god, the amount of like buffoonery Ugh. in this episode is just a, a whole next level. So all right. So this is season one of Law and Order, episode twenty. It is called The Troubles. Which I was like, I'm not even going to look it up because maybe it just means troubles. But I did look it up. I will explain all of that in my recap. Oh, okay. I'll give you my little blurb and then you could choose whether you keep it in now or, or what. Okay, great. So I'm, I literally just looked it up on Google and then from, this is literally just from Britannica.com. Uh, that's says, really funny because I don't include it because I'm going to say it later. <laughs> literally, I took it from Britannica. Yes. Does it begin with the Troubles and end with Republic of Ireland? I might have, like, spliced a couple things together because I talk about it a little (laughs) bit. But Britannica was absolutely one of my sources. That's hilarious. Okay, so essentially the Troubles is a uh, another word for a a conflict that happens in Northern Ireland. Yes. So that's where the relevance of the episode title is, and you'll find out why shortly. But Um, it's only honestly, like, tangentially related to the episode. It really is. It really is. So, okay, so we're at the beginning of the episode and we don't have any beat cops. Ugh, I was so bummed. Say it. Yeah, no beat cops, no no dog discovery. I no. don't think any dog. No, no dog discovery. So, okay. I'm worried that's they're, the part that I'm going to I'm gonna lose on not having a dog discovery. 
I don't think you are. I think you've you think got I'll plenty get of time. Okay. Yeah, because we're going to overlap into season two pretty soon. Yeah. And I'm sure they're going to like, okay, we can reset the clock on the dog discovery. <laughs> <laughs> they just have like a big wall of like, how many days has it been since we did this trope? Yes. <laughs> exactly. And and that one, instead of having like tally marks, it's like little paw prints. <laughs> oh my God. You know what I don't need at the beginning of an episode? What's that? And it, an extreme close-up of someone clipping their nasty fingernails. <laughs> what? Uh, honest. Uh, who? Let me tell you. Ew. I was once in a a uh, course in my graduate program, which are usually like graduate programs. Typically, your classes are pretty small. They're like ten or fifteen people typically, because graduates there's fewer graduate students, and mm-hmm. I I literally had somebody clipping their toe nails. In class, I almost puked all over her. The only place you should ever be having a nail clipper with you is in the in your own home. Yes, agreed. And I'm sorry, there is no there is no emergency nail clipping situation. No, that will come up outside of your house. And if it does, it's your. I get a lot of hangnails. I mean, but that's different. That's like a little cuticle. Like, let me clip that so I don't catch it or whatever. Yeah, it's not like I'm laying my hands out on the table and I'm I'm getting down. I'm getting down and dirty. <laughs> down and dirty, clipping my nails. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how this episode begins: an extreme close-up of someone clipping their nails on the sidewalk. Probably the most horrifying thing we've ever seen on Law and Order. I was pretty repulsed. I I was like, this is the kind of episode we're in for. I don't even know what what we're going for. But then it's just meant to show, like, oh, look, we're waiting. a group of detectives that are waiting, and they're all doing, like, stupid shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they're all waiting outside of a detention center for a van, I guess, bringing prisoners over from a federal facility. That's what we glean from this information. And they're yeah. all annoyed because they're late. And they're chatting about the guys that each of these um, investigators or detectives, we don't really know who they are really right yet, but we're waiting for these, the perpetrators to be brought over and they're all sort of chatting about who their, who their guy is. They, they describe their guys. Yeah. I'm literally going to just say their last names with who they meet, who they are linked to and hope that we can just keep it. I'm hoping I can keep it straight. <laughs> I don't want this yeah. to be like who's on first. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> okay. So, we have, I guess, Detective Roberts is there, and he is representing or looking for a Lebanese gentleman named Mustafa. Last name Mustafa. It's a great Logan last and Greedy, name. our guys. <laughs> I, it is a great last name, actually. Yeah. His whole name is really good, actually. So then we get Logan and Greedy, and they're waiting for someone named uh, Montez, who is Cuban. And then we have a guy named D'Amato, who is waiting for someone named O'Connell, who is Irish. And their races really don't matter in in general, but they matter to the episode because it's all they talk about the whole episode. Did your stomach just growl? Oh my God, did you hear it? I did. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to let you leave that in because I, I was like, oh wow, I wonder if they heard that as it happened because I felt it. I have my headphones on though, so I don't hear a lot of what's going on in my room. <laughs> that is so funny. Are you hungry? Not really. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm always a little hungry. <laughs> My cousin once always a little hungry. In when we were uh together, we we went to the same community college, and 
she once was giving a presentation in or like acting out a scene from we were in an English class and she had to act out a scene and her stomach growled in the middle of it. And the teacher said, like, how do you think this character is feeling? And somebody said, hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Savage. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I keep interrupting. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh, that's great. No, you know what it is? We have an apple fritter upstairs waiting for later. And I just want to eat Ooh, it now. Yum. To okay. be honest. This is our little cast of characters. And Detective Roberts says that um, his guy, Mustafa, is in for drugs and gun smuggling. And he's ready to talk, though. And D'Amato says that O'Connell, his guy, is innocent. And he's a political prisoner who has been, you know, held for no reason. And then, you know, the team laughs like, oh, yeah, innocent. And then our guy is Logan and Grevy. I don't want to claim them, but they are our guys. <laughs> Actually, out of this bunch, I will claim them. So they Best say that their bunch. guy. Oh, my. A bad bunch. It's like a. This is like when you go to the store and you buy like a bag of apples or like a bag of fruit or a bag of something. And then you open it up and like there's only one good one. <laughs> and it's not that good. It's not that good. There's yeah. like a bruise or something wrong with each one, but it's just turned in such a way that it was hard to find, figure out. Yes. Did I you know there's a really apples. cool company that I think is too. I'm not going to talk about it. Go ahead. Is it Imperfect Foods or like yes. u- ugly fruit? I saw like some ads for that. I think that's a really good idea. I wonder if I it's really cool legit, to- just like I- ugly looking stuff. I looked into it, but it's like it- it's too, it's not customizable enough yet. So I'm not mm-hmm. interested. Well, let me know. Okay. Let me know out there. Everyone, anyone with Imperfect Foods, send us your box for free next time, and we'll we'll tell you if we liked it. Yeah, great. <laughs> so they're having this conversation, and it turns incredibly, incredibly racist um, towards everybody involved. And it concludes in D'Amato saying that they should all go back to where they came from, if you ask him. And then they make some kind of comment about it, but they all still laugh. Yeah. Boys will be boys moment. Mm. And then the prisoners arrive, and when they open the van, the guy that Roberts is waiting for, Mustafa, he is dead, sitting in between the two other men, and he's, like, shackled to them. And did a really bad job acting dead, by the way, because I did not know that he was dead at first. I was like, what is, what, what, he's just, like, sitting on the other guy's shoulder, (laughs) staring at the, it was weird. Yeah, (laughs) and Davey saw his throat move. (laughs) (laughs) So, oops. But the other guys maybe don't know he's dead either because they're not, they're very unaffected by being shackled to a dead body. Right. And the opening credits play, you know, they cut right to it. So I had a minute and I drove down to Disneyland and I hit a few <laughs> of the rides. I grabbed a churro and a turkey leg for the ride home. And then I settled back in. You did not need any fast passes. You had plenty of time. Oh, I had plenty of time. I went on Space Mountain. I hit the new Rise of the Resistance ride. It was so fun. Oh, I almost didn't even come back, but I got back just in time, and then we were right back in the episode. P.S. <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> Matt did not uh, somehow get Disneyland to open during the pandemic. <laughs> oh, imagine. Agent Axelrod. That's a fake porn name if I ever heard it. <laughs> exactly. I'm Agent the next Axelrod. Character we meet, <laughs> it, might, it might as well have been like, someone must have been like out of Mechanics Garage. Yes. And they're like, mm, what's his name? Is Axel mm. Rod a real thing? Is that a piece of a car? Well, an Axel is a thing and a rod is a thing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I don't think an Axel Rod's a real thing. I'll ask my dad. Yeah, so we're back here and the the scene is a little bit different. The 
FBI shows up, federal agent Axelrod comes out, and he's got this, like, shoe-polished hair, plasticky Don Draper knockoff look going on. (laughs) And it's very slimy, and it's like you get a bad vibe from him right away. Yeah. He says, this is a federal case because these guys are federal prisoners, and he's like, show's over, we're we're out of here, who's in charge, all this, you know, bravado. And Grievy, you know, he's like triggered by this he's like i'm in charge here and he's arguing like this is not a federal case these guys have been signed over to our custody they literally like do a weird schoolyard bully like shoving match being like it's my prisoner it's my prisoner it's mine exactly exactly i wrote that he and him uh he and grievy have a little standoff over who has the bigger testicles (laughs) (laughs) and while that's happening in the background um, Mustafa is pulled, his body is pulled out of the car, thrown on the ground, and then Roberts, the guy who's supposed to be waiting for him, starts kicking the shit out of him. The dead body. Um, the dead body. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure that's like, not how you process a crime scene. Uh, hello? It was <laughs> insane. And everyone is, there's like 10 officers, Cop, detectives, people, people yeah. just standing there like, yep. And then he goes to go beat up the, the two living guys. Of course, yeah. he goes for for um, the Cuban one, but he goes to fight them, and he and to break it up, Logan goes, "Hey, we'll beat our own prisoners." Right, that was a cute line. Jesus, oh, real cute. So that's this is the episode I'm getting <laughs> on my lap. You're so welcome. In the next, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so next, the feds say that they're taking both of the live suspects back, and they can have the dead one. Great. Um, <laughs> this is a problem for Damato because. He says that he's got a case against some Westies that he's supposed to, that his guy O'Connell is supposed to be a player in. And I had to look this up. I don't, I did not know what the Westies were. Mm-hmm. The Westies are an Irish American mob in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. And while the numbers, the number of member, members, and while the number of members doesn't usually exceed 20, they're just as deadly and violent as their Italian mafia counterparts. End quote. All right. So that's who the Westies are, because they, ref- they it doesn't really matter, but they refer to them multiple times in the episode, and I'm like, who are these? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they say, oh, you got a case with the Westies? We don't care. Bye. A case and of the Westies. <laughs> exactly. I've got a really bad case of the Westies. Do you have the oh. ointment for that? <laughs> so um, Cragen is back at the station. He's pissed. He's pissed that they let this happen. How could you let, you know, two murder suspects get away as if they got away the federal agents took them right but um they didn't really have a choice they explain and uh they're like well you're gonna have to work really hard in this case because they're not going to cooperate now i would argue they cooperated a little bit yeah but they they go over and they question montez first and he's their guy they were waiting for in the first place he says he doesn't speak english and his acting atrocious i don't know if he was like playing drunk or if he actually was drunk, maybe. Like, his body language was, like, he was always sort of swaying or off balance or, like, ready to fight or something. And then he was overdoing, like, these weird physical cues. And I'm Italian, and I'm gay. So for me to say you're overdoing, like, body language, you're overdoing body language. Yes. Matt, it's, when Matt gets fired up, it's kind of, it's almost an interpretive dance. <laughs> You might think I'm conducting an orchestra. Yes. 
this guy is really out of control and like he's got this i i cannot talk about it enough it's so ridiculous i really thought he was going to turn out to be like a madman nope so he's uh he's in there and he's saying he doesn't speak english so they get an interpreter and she's able to just basically say that he's not saying anything so totally wasted scene so they question they go off to a question o'connell now and um he has a little crush on logan it seems because of his irish heritage mm-hmm. and logan has this newfound patriotic flair all of a sudden yes didn't see it any other episode yet but no here he is and Grievy, however, is unmoved by this whole display and is like, eh, okay, I'm out of here. You know, tell me if you figure anything else out. Yeah. Then there's this like higher up guy that they talk to. And I guess he's like a commander or sergeant or something at the prison. Morton? Sure. I, I don't know. That guy. So he says uh, he's in charge there, whoever he is. And they say that he, he you can't question anything, anyone else besides these two people. And he gives them a little backstory on O'Connell. And so it turns out that O'Connell came here in 1985 illegally with a warrant from Britain for terrorism, but Mm -hmm. he wants to claim political asylum here. And, like, nobody wants him here, but if he has to testify or if he's being brought here for, like, a case, then he has to stay here. So that's, like, the conundrum they're in. Yeah. And Grievy says, you know, he's he's not interested in all this because, me, I'm just a cop after a killer. (laughs) He... Dick Tracy. Yeah. Dick Tracy moment. <laughs> so on the way out, uh, the detectives are having a little chat about how Logan basically is acting like he just met the man of his dreams when he met O'Connell. Mm-hmm. And Grievy's trying to snap him out of his little like cloud of adoration by reminding him that he's just as much of a suspect as Montez. And Lo- Logan feels that's unfair because he says the guy was, quote, held without trial, without charges, without bail. Makes you think, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? Isn't it interesting, though? It only makes him think this revelation only happens when the person, like, looks and sounds like him? Yes. Otherwise, you know, just hold people without cause for whatever reason. Yeah, smack them in the back of the head. Have kids exactly. being uh, questioned without their parents. Yep. So, Cragen insists in the next scene that they do a little more detective work, or like any at all. <laughs> so... <laughs> They go and they check out the victim's life. They go to show up at his job and speak to his wife. And they very insensitively tell her that her husband has just died. Mm -hmm. And then this scene, like, just devolves into, like, dangerous, wildly untrue stereotypes about Middle Eastern community. A hundred. It was such, uh, yes. Everything they did. Davey was so mad from the moment this scene happened. Yeah. I hated this so much. And it has no relevance Nope. No relevance to anything else that happens in the episode. This is over. And, oh, I just wanted to note this. So this is in like 1990, right? This this episode? Yeah. Or ish? This yeah. is like 10, 10 years, more than 10 years, maybe, before the events of 9-11, when most people like refer to as like when these phobias and started to happen in people about terrorist attacks and, yeah. and like the prejudice against individuals from the Middle East. Like a lot of people like to root it there. Like, oh, look, don't you understand like why people would have been afraid and whatever? That's like the kind of excuse that's used a lot, even though, that, right. you know, we all know that doesn't matter either. But this is like 10 years before that. And it's just the clearest mm-hmm. indication to me that like, for those of us who maybe didn't know that back then or faced it every day, like these seeds have been planted for 
far, far, far before anything. Oh my like god! That. Yeah, we have had like <laughs> anti-immigrant sentiment forever in this country, which is so funny since we're supposed to be like this great American melting a country pot. of immigrants. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, exactly. But only if you're white. Yeah. Anyhow, so that's 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 what they that's how they treat the um the widow of a of somebody. Mm-hmm. They go back and do some more investigation on Montez, and turns out he's got a a rap sheet that says he's killed two men, or he's been you know convicted of murder twice, and both times it was strangulation, which matches how Mustafa was killed. And they also find out he's a known heroin addict, possibly a dealer, and so they're going to chase down this lead. But they're interrupted by federal agent Axelrod or bicycle chain or whatever, <laughs> hammer and nail. <laughs> um, and he says, uh, you can't do any more investigation because no one's allowed to know Mustafa's dead because he's a player in like an investigation we're doing. And so keep it to yourself. Right. Um, and they're like, too late. We told his family. We just screamed it mm-hmm. in the face. Yep. And he goes, tough. <laughs> That's his rant. Like, not even disappointed. No, but uh, so the next scene we have the detectives finding Montez in his cell, and much to their disappointment and surprise, he is dead. Yep. And they're like, "How could this have happened?" But there's a sheet around his neck. He's lying on the bed, and it's you know, all signs immediately, even to the viewer, it's a staged suicide. Yeah, the scene doesn't add up at all. We have a guy there who I loved, but I didn't pay too much attention to him. But he basically is like, yeah, uh, this is obviously fake. Who's trying to shut him up? So Grievy is like, well, you know, let's go talk to O'Connell because he's the one of the two witnesses to a murder who's alive. Mm-hmm. But Logan's not sold. So they head back to the victim's job where a sign says moved to Beirut. <clears throat> Um, is that how that goes when a business closes mm-hmm. down? They put a, a p- paper mm-hmm. sign saying where they went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so they got there. They just needed this... like a quick way to wrap that up. They were like, uh, they moved to Beirut. Moved to Beirut. Like it's a cartoon. Out to right. lunch. Gone fishing. <laughs> Out to lunch. Moved to Beirut. <laughs> so they, they have a stroke of luck. They open the trash can out front and they retrieve the faxes from earlier on. More racist nonsense abounds. And then they see a random Irish newspaper hanging around. Why? It just is now, all of a sudden. Uh, A plot device is why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it says that there's a fundraiser for O'Connell at a nearby pub. And they're like, all right, let's go there. This next scene is literally, I feel like we stepped out of a TV show and into a movie. Hmm. Or like a Lifetime movie at the very least. It's shot entirely different. The vibe is different. There's like a a love story that's festering. It's... (sighs) Yeah, it's very strange. So we're in this pub, which is, you know, set up like every pub scene you've seen from everything from the 90s ever. And it just looks a lot different than any pub I've ever been to. But the scene is shot, like I said, a movie. It's very um, it's almost like I feel like there's a filter on the camera. And we get to meet Sheila, a waitress looking for love. (laughs) looking for love she she you know what she's not looking for love she's given up she doesn't think it's it's for her i'm just i just have to work you know yeah i don't have time for love she's you know working her way through the bar she's trying to get everything done killing it but you know that kind of thing where every once in a while she's got to like catch a falling glass from behind her as she's walking yes and then she bumps into two mysterious men who she makes for cops right away <laughs> it's <laughs> 
<laughs> so ridiculous. Logan kind of rubs her the wrong way, but Grievy recognizes, wait, this one needs a little finesse. So he catches her aside and like says, hey, hey there, little lady, you wipe your, te- you, you wipe your tears. I'm here for you. Essentially. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. He's like, she's, they're doing this like, we're in a pub, we're Irish thing. Are there no, okay, listen, I am really excited to do some bad Irish accents in this episode. <laughs> and I, I've been to Ireland and mm-hmm. definitely there are pubs that like feel like this sometimes. I don't know if they're specifically like kind of catering to tourists, but I wasn't sure if that would be true in like New York City, whether, because you can find Irish pubs in sort of like cities all over the world. We found one in, I think we found one in Italy. And, but like, I didn't know if there would be one like that in New York, but regardless, it's literally, uh, it's like they had never seen an Irish person or talked to an Irish person. And they just like, were like, what could we, how could we make this feel like a total caricature St. Patrick's Day type scene? Okay, that's what it feels like. It feels like a St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yes. And they have like every character in the background be like, a boyo, like it, just like yes. anything you could think of to be like, this is Irish. Like they just were trying so hard to make it seem so, so, so Irish. Right. Like bringing up like that dairy jar thing and like yes. uh, having her say these random phrases. She's even like wearing a polka dot green shirt that like almost looks like <sighs> it has shamrocks on it. Shamrocks. <laughs> so yeah. Obnoxious. But in any event, she's a, she was a very good actress. Yeah, say. she was not bad. And and she's been in other things. I kind of recognized yes. her. Okay, do you so I I, I looked up what she's from because I recognized her too. Great. She's played by Harriet Sansom Harris. Um she's in Ratchet most recently, which I haven't oh, watched uh-huh. yet. Um she's in a show called Atlantic Crossing, which is apparently still on, where she plays Eleanor Roosevelt. And okay. she played Felicia Tillman on Desperate Housewives. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. And the only other two guest stars, I forgot to mention them as we met them, as I said I was going to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. The other guest star I haven't mentioned yet is um, Detective D'Amato, that piece of trash at the beginning of the episode who said everyone should go back to where they came from. Mm-hmm. He's played by Ray Ianacelli. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. But he mm-hmm. looked familiar to me. But And I looked it up. It's because he's been in like a zillion things as like a character mm. actor or like a side person. With a few, like, okay. bigger roles. He was in Don't Say a Word, um, 2014's Annie. He was in Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And most recently, he was in Joker. Um, and you watched Oz, right? I have seen episodes of Oz, but I haven't oh, watched okay. the whole thing. See, that's like me, too. He was evidently um, Officer Roger Brisey in Oz. I don't know who that is because I don't okay. watch it very much, but yeah. Same. So he's a, he's a regular, uh, a regular so-and-so he's been in a lot okay. of things. Basically. He's a, one of those people that you see in like, Oh, and he's in like, uh, 10 more episodes. I think of law in order to come. If I looked, if I looked oh, up correctly okay. <laughs> in all the different, uh, versions even. So they're talking to the waitress and she, or Grievy is talking to her now because as I said, Logan rubbed her the wrong way. Grievy's got the magic touch and she opens up to him for no good reason about a story that means nothing. She points them in the direction of this guy named McCarter, who's having a beer, and she says, this guy's a prison warden, and maybe you should talk to him. It's kind of random out of nowhere that she even brought that up. So they go back to the station, and they're looking at their evidence, and the only kind of things they gleaned from the faxes was sort of code suggesting that there's 
the movement of plastic explosives explosives by Mustafa. And they also find out that MacArthur is a prison warden at the very federal institution where they found Montez, and he was the first one on the scene. So that's enough, and they're able to go arrest him. Now we're over to the DA's portion of the episode, and they're very wary about being in court against members of the IRA, which is the Irish Resistance... Republican Army. Republican Army, thank you. The Irish Republican Army. Um, but they decide to press MacArthur anyway and and see what they get out of him. So they meet up with him and his lawyer, and they sit with Robin and Stone, who they lay out the whole thing and say, you don't have a strong case, your best bet is to be honest, and if you don't want to be tried for murder at 22 years old, you should probably cooperate. And the lawyer is kind of like, uh, I don't know about that, trying to say, like, we're not going to do that. And Stone takes him aside and says that, I'm going to bury your client, and you're <laughs> letting it happen to protect the IRA. And that's what it looks like to me, and that's what it's going to look like to everybody, and you're going to get thrown off this case. Um, and he's like, you know what? Actually, maybe we will take that deal <laughs> that you're talking about. <laughs> So Stone I've had brings some the... time to think about it. <laughs> I've had a few seconds to think about this. And while I, I dispute your allegation, yeah. the IRA, I don't even know what that is. Um, I'm, I'm open. I'm open. Yeah. <laughs> I'm open to No alliances. expectations. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that Thorgy? That's Thorgy Thorgy, yeah. Yes. I'm open to alliances. <laughs> I love that. So Stone brings the case back to Schiff. You know that Skeksis that sits in the office? <laughs> Remember him? <laughs> <laughs> he they really is a jim henson character he's just he's like a, a troll that just periodically emerges to like spout wisdom for stone and robinette he is fully animatronic <laughs> I, I don't think he i've seen legs move i don't think i've seen no him. no it, you've never seen him from the waist down i don't think no even when he's been oh, standing the rare occasion i take it back there was the scene where they were in suits at that like democratic uh like oh. awards dinner or whatever yeah that random democratic awards dinner that never meant anything afterwards yeah they go back to the office and they tell him that everything is riding on MacArthur's testimony and that o'connell has admitted to him that he killed mustafa but he's worried that getting that out of him in court might not be so easy because they found out that he's been threatened and schiff says i have someone that i can connect you to I still don't know who this person is. I just know that he has a British accent. I think he's there because he wants to see O'Connell go to jail. Okay. So he's just trying to, like, help out Stone however he can. Gotcha. All right, so we're connected to this British guy who's in the fold. And um, he says that Mustafa was moving weapons, even missiles, for the IRA. And who is the head of anti-terrorism in New York? Who they could go talk to about it? Axelrod screwdriver Axelrod guy. Bimber Bam. <laughs> so they go to find Mr. Bimberban. And Ravenette finds that finds out from him that Washington wants O'Connell's name out of the press. He doesn't want him in they don't want him in the paper. They want this whole thing to go away. And he asks if the DA's office is seeing the big picture. And Ravenette says, Yes, we're just not blinded by it. Ooh, okay. Blinded by the light. What is the next line of that song? I think it's... It goes... Da, ba, ba, da, day. <laughs> well, okay. My brain always turns the lyrics into like, stepped up like a douche, something, something, something. Uh, I will go with... Blinded by the light. Da, ba, boo, da, do, dee, da, ba, dee, da, ba, da, do. <laughs> Revved up like a deuce. 
which is about like. a 1932 Ford Coupe. I think revved up like a douche sounds like a lot, uh, much more believable. I think be dot dot do sounds a lot better. Oh, be dot dot do. Yeah. <laughs> Who sings that song? Oh, it's a song written and recorded by Bruce Springsteen. Oh my God. My mom's okay, going to kill go. me when she hears this episode. The entire state of New Jersey is going to kill me when I don't know Bruce Springsteen's song. But I'm is just he a Jersey? Say it. Is he from Jersey? He's like a huge Jersey like icon. The boss. Oh. It's like Bon boss. Jovi okay. and, and Bruce Springsteen. Every bar you go to. I could do without. I'm sorry. I could do without both. I could for sure do without Bon Jovi. Oh, that's so but funny. Bruce if I Springsteen I can I, deal with. My mom's going to kill me for saying this too. I would pick Bon Jovi. I don't wow. think they're be- like better artists. I I do think uh, Bruce Springsteen is a a really talented artist. I just don't like his music. Like it's not it doesn't speak Same. to me. But Bon Jovi Same. has some very like power ballady rock pop songs that are easy to kind of like get swept up in. I feel like I will give it's you my that. life. It's oh. now or never. Oh, that's really favorite. Forever. Are we yeah. gonna get sued? <laughs> oh, find out the the times. <laughs> Like, what's the amount of time you could do it for? <laughs> okay. On the same day that they're told, you know, the DA's office is told, look at the big picture and don't make any any moves and we want this guy out of the press. There's an actual press conference happening right outside about O'Connell's freedom. And while that's happening, he's arrested on live television for the murder mm-hmm. of Ahmed Mustafa. So, so much for that plan. And O'Connell's defense attorney... This is one of the guys I didn't know who he wasn't. Like, he just randomly appeared in the episode. So this guy is very um, boisterous, bombastic, and he's in court and he's saying that right away he says something like that the life of a Lebanese heroin addict should be less valuable than that of an Irish patriot. Nope. Hello. So Stone uh, calls MacArthur. To the, so they're like, um, no, we're, we're proceeding with this case. That's, that is not a, uh, grounds for dismissal. So Stone, even though the whole courtroom cheers, because it's meant to, we're meant to believe that this is all like very um, diehard Irish Catholic supporting our people community, but Stone calls MacArthur to the stand right away and he does what they wanted him to do. He confesses that he was ordered to kill Montez by the IRA um, to keep McConnell safe and that McConnell was aware of it and that he said that um, McConnell said that he killed Mustafa in chambers right after this. Axelrod doesn't want to testify. He says that if I testify, it's going to blow the whole operation. And the judge is like, well, you kind of have to. Like, keep it, keep the facts straight. You don't have to tell everybody, but you don't have to tell everything you know, but you have to testify. So he goes on the stand and Stone has him explaining that the whole motive is that the Lebanese sell the Syrians opium who sell it as heroin to fund random t- or various terrorist organizations, including the IRA. So this is the whole link for Mustafa. And this, he also says that Mustafa was directly a middleman and he was screwing them out of a bunch of money. And that is the motive. And he was working with them and they probably knew he was going to testify. So that was the motive for his his murder. So on the stand, O'Connell tries to distance himself from the vi- quote unquote violent wing of the IRA. He says that he's never committed a violent act in his life. He's on like a legislative side. He has nothing to do with that. Next, we have Stone outside talking to that British guy again. And he's giving him like what's going on. And he says, well, I might have a witness for you. And he's like, what is it? And he's like beating around the bush. And he's like, well, Fine, I'll get you the I'll get you the witness and 
you know, they bury the lead. We don't know what's coming. So the next scene has us back in the courtroom again. And Stone is now cross-examining O'Connell. And he has him talking about the IRA and the kind of behaviors they've done. And he says something like, would you say that your your organization isn't violent and that even though you're maybe, say, you weren't affiliated with that branch of them, like, what do your people in your branch think about the violent goings-on by everybody else in the organization? And he says, you know, that a bomb going off that's set by them and killing, like, a busload of kids, for example, is human error. Yikes. Mm. So... He he says this, but he stands by, I'm not affiliated with any violent member of the IRA, regardless of how I feel about that. And then Stone says, okay, I have another witness. And he calls Bridget McDermott to the stand, who um, I looked up. She's an actress who played the older version of Betty from A League of Their Own. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie, too. I couldn't remember who Betty was right away. I had to look it up. She's the one whose husband dies in a war and they like find out at the tavern. Oh, I remember oh, that. So and they all take their hats off and put them over their chests. Yeah, because she thinks she's getting like a letter from him. But it's like yeah. news. Oh, it's so sad. But yeah, I was like, look at you. You're still out there. Look at you. I mean, look I at us. still out there. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. So she gets on the stand and she's testifying. And clearly, like everyone is shocked. And um, O'Connell looks like nervous about what's about to happen. They try to object, but it doesn't work out. And she testifies that O'Connell actually murdered both of her children and her husband nine years ago. And she says that um, it, it happened all right in front of her. She tells the story. He had like been walking down the street and put down a suitcase or a bag of some sort. And her husband was trying to be a kind Samaritan and return it to him. And suddenly it exploded and killed all of them right in front of her. Really like devastating. Yeah. And then Stone says, take a good look. There's your human error. Mm. We cut to the next scene and we find out that he has been sentenced 25 to life. And the cast of characters that we've all been with, uh, all the lawyers and police officers are lauded for their bravery and efforts as the show comes to a close. I think it's lauded. Really? Isn't it lauded? I think it's lauded. Oh, okay. That's how I've always said. said it anyway, but... I don't know if I've ever heard it. I think I've only ever read it. No one ever lou- no one ever louds or lauds me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, great job. That episode was really hard to follow and is very different. Not like not like la- the Dangerfield Church shooting episode where I was like, this has nothing to do with this episode, but it's it's they really took some creative liberties and, and just kind of like borrowed a random person and w- worked them into this random storyline of like multiple like immigration related crimes or issues that they had okay because i was gonna say none of this sounds at all familiar i don't think it will even when i tell you the story okay do what do you think i know the story i don't know i i didn't know the story so i'm (laughs) so obviously you wouldn't no i have no (laughs) idea i've i had never heard of it so i would be surprised if you had also heard of it so are you ready for the true crime i'm so ready okay great so, so my sources for this are The Black Table, which is a blog that is an archive and special collection of um, articles from the New York University Library, um, created by New- NYU librarians, um, an article by Rachel Searcy, S-E-A-R-C-Y, a 1988 New York Times article by Mark Ulig, a 1992 New York Times article by James Barron, 
a 2015 NBC News interview, a 1992 Fordham Law Review article by James T. Kelly, 1992 AP News article that did not specify an author, Britannica.com, <laughs> a 2015 Global Post article by Corinne Pertil, and a 1990 Washington Post article by Sean Kelly. Okay. And of course, our trusty faves, Wikipedia, the Law and Order Wiki, etc. Right. Okay, so I'm going to give just a very, very brief little history lesson, and it's history that I'm not as familiar with because it's Irish history, and I'm, you know, obviously we didn't read a whole lot about Irish history in, you know, grammar school, mm-hmm. middle school. And whatever. I'm Irish, and I don't know I am too. a lot about Irish and history. Yeah, I learned more when I went to Ireland a couple years ago, um, but less about, this really involves Northern Ireland, which I do know some about from mm-hmm. especially from going to Ireland a year or two ago. So I want to preface that by say preface this whole story by saying if I get any of this wrong, particularly if I get anything wrong about like the conflict in Northern Ireland, um, if you're listening to this and you're like, that's wrong, please let me know and I'll be happy to correct it in a future episode. But I think that I've got my facts correct in this. Okay. I'm glad this is yours. I feel like you're way more equipped to do this. <laughs> well, we'll find out. Yeah. So <laughs> The this the true crime for this is the case of Joe Doherty, um, or I would say Joe Doherty. He is described in a couple articles about how his the way his he has like a an Irish brogue accent, and so he pronounces his name Doherty when he says it. But it so I'm not sure if he would hear me say Doherty and think that I'm impersonating an Irish accent mm. or you know what whatever. So I'm I'm gonna say Doherty just to be safe. Um, In case that, because that's how he sort of pronounces it. Okay, so this case involves the Troubles, which were, which is sort of a a 30-year, it's like a 30-year conflict over the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. Um, And it was like primarily between 1968 and 1998, but it really was a like long-standing conflict between the native people of Ireland and being under British rule. Because they were a a empire of, or not an empire, they were part of the British Empire. So the Troubles really involved sort of like two groups of people who lived in Northern Ireland, one side being the Unionists, who are predominantly Protestants and wanted to remain a, I don't know if province is the right word, but under part of the uh, United Kingdom. And then the other group are the nationalists who are overwhelmingly Roman Catholics and wanted Northern Ireland to become its own independent country, no longer part of British rule and part of the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. So even though those there's these two groups that are pretty sharply divided across like religious affiliation, it actually like the conflict wasn't primarily over religion. It was actually just that belief of whether or not Ireland or Northern Ireland should be its own independent country or not. In the 1960s, the Protestant majority, the Unionists, held most of the political power in the country. Um, So they were loyal to the British crown, and they sort of ran the country and their communities in a way that the Roman Catholic nationalists felt like wasn't fair to them. And 
Like there, there's been a, a really long-standing history of of I- Britain oppressing Ireland in really, really violent ways. You know, saying that the Irish couldn't own property, blah blah blah. So there is a really long history of oppression that's pretty gruesome and ugly. And the the Roman Catholics were starting to feel increasingly isolated and powerless and without political influence over their own state. So in the years before World War I, both groups, the Nationalists and the Unionists, established armed militias to enforce their aims and to protect their communities from the other side's militias. And the and Britain decided to solve this by putting up walls between the communities that they termed peace walls. And if you go, so we went to, we were predominantly in uh, the Republic of Ireland, not in Northern Ireland when we went to visit a couple of years ago, but we did spend some time in Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland. And it's actually a really big tourist attraction is is to like go see the peace walls and because they're still standing to this day and they're sort of dividing the community between, um, again, the sort of nationalists and the unionists and predominantly roman catholics and protestants so there's this really like visible con- literally concrete division between these two communities that still exist today like the gates are open the walls are still up but the gates still close every night and like when we were there we we were talking to our guides and they were saying like, you know, oh, I would not date somebody from the other side of the wall. Like I wouldn't necessarily feel safe going to a, a bar on the other side late at night. So there, you know, this sort of like, quote unquote, was resolved in 1998 through a set of agreements, but it's it's still really, really ingrained into the country in a, in a really fascinating way. Does it go both ways, do you think? Like on each side of the wall, that, side of, that sentiment is the same? Yes. So what was really fascinating was we, we were a really big group, like 20 of my family went. So we um, like hired our own sort of like tour guides and stuff because we were a big enough group to be able to do that. And um, we had a, a bus driver and a tour guide on the same day. And one of them was from one side and one was from the other side. And the um, one of them actually had been like a former member of the IRA. And so we actually got to hear both of them sort of like talking about it. And both of them like felt that sentiment, like they were able to like talk with each other, work with each other, blah, 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 blah. But there's still like a, a very sense of like loyalty to your community that was hmm. um, really, really present. Wow. Okay. Again, I'm, I'm an outsider describing this. So if I'm getting this wrong, it's purely due to ignorance. Please correct me if I get any of this wrong and I will happily correct it on a future episode. So this, the, the period of 68 to 98, there was tremendous conflict between these communities, violent conflict between these communities. There was bombings, there were shootings. Um, 3,600 people were killed over the period of these 30 years and more than 30,000 wounded before there was um, the kind of resolution in 1998. That's insane. Yeah, so a pretty significant civil unrest. And it is sort of in this period where the crime or maybe person who inspired this Law and Order episode sort of begins. So Joe Dougherty, who was born in January of 1955 in New Lodge, Belfast, is the person who really inspired this episode. And um, he was born, his father was a dock worker, his grandfather was a member of the Irish Citizen Army, which 
this is uh, this is where it started to get kind of convoluted and hard for me to distinguish without spending a lot of time connect like reading the history but the irish citizen army seems to be have been at various points kind of part of the ira or connected to the ira in some ways regardless they felt similarly that ireland should be its own independent country mm-hmm. So Joe Dougherty was born into a family and a community that felt really passionately about Irish independence, and he left school at 14 years old and started working on the docks as well, and also as an apprentice plumber. And in 1972, he was arrested on his 17th birthday on unspecified charges under the Special Powers Act. The Special Powers Act is bananas. It was put into law during the period of the Troubles and was supposedly this act that was passed to restore civil order in Northern Ireland and sort of end the conflicts, blah, blah, blah. But because the Unionist Party was in power, it was almost exclusively enforced against the Roman Catholic Irish. And so one of the most controversial aspects of the Special Powers Act allowed for, and this is a direct quote, indefinite internment without warrant or trial of any person whose behavior is of such a nature as to give reasonable grounds for suspecting that he has acted, is acting, or is about to act in a manner prejudicial to the preservation of the peace or maintenance of order. So this is like full like minority report status where they're like, we think you might be connected to something, or maybe you might do something in the future. So we're going to hold you in jail without any trial and without any, um, you know, uh, charges filed against you for as long as we fucking feel like. That sounds bananas. Oh my God. I know the United States and many other countries Mm. are still doing things exactly like this, but it's just fucked. Especially when it's like in writing, like this is what we can do. Right. Like the fact that that sentence made it into law is horrifying. The fact that they could write down a reason on like a report for like an arrest or something like that, detainment, whatever, they can write like bad feelings. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Felt like it. Didn't like how he looked. (laughs) Whatever it is. So on January 30th, 1972, during a, this is, okay, so at this point, Joe Dougherty is in prison. And at the time that he's in prison, on January 30th, 1972, during a protest march against the policy of interning people without trial, so there were people protesting that, British soldiers opened fire on the marchers, shooting 26, immediately killing 13 of them, and a 14th leader died of their injuries. Oh my god. So just in case you need another example of why we need to defund the police and abolish policing as we know it, but... Most of the shooting victims, this is where most of the shooting victims were shot in the back while running from police. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. So many, many, many others were injured by shrapnel, rubber bullets and batons, and two people were run down by police vehicles. This would come to be known as Bloody Sunday, which was one of the most significant events during the Troubles and is considered the worst mass shooting in Northern Irish history. I've heard of Bloody Sunday. Yeah. There's the U2 song about it. See, I hate U2. I just know the title of the song. <laughs> I hate U2, Matt. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> That's how I heard it at first, and then I realized you were saying U2. I hate U2. So 
Bloody Sunday, this this mass shooting of protesters occurred in full view of the public and the press. And so you can imagine this spurred a lot of anti-British sentiment and increased enrollment in the IRA because a lot of people were like, fuck this, fuck the British. No, we're not doing this anymore. So Joe Doherty, he is currently interned at the Long Kesh Detention Center when Bloody Sunday happens, and he learns of the events of Bloody Sunday while he's in prison. So upon his release in June of 1972, so he spent six months in prison without charges and without trial, he enrolled in the IRA. In the mid-1970s, Joe Doherty was convicted of possession of explosives and sentenced to six years of imprisonment. When he was released from that, he became part of a four-man active service unit, which is basically a, uh, like a, a cell of men who are charged with carrying out armed attacks. So it's basically like, if I understand correctly, the IRA sort of had these um, like cells of people in a way that you could be like, okay, group number one, you're going to do this. Group number two, you're going to do that. That kind of thing. I'm sure it was mm-hmm. way more organized than that. I am not a military person. <laughs> it sounds but like essentially, very like classroom. Like group A, group B. Yeah, very much. So it kind of feels like that where it's sort of like these group of people who they they sort of did everything together. Like it was like, okay, if we need this thing carried out, we're going to go with this group. They're going to mm-hmm. do it. So in in that... Um, cell with him were two men named Angelo Fusco, uh, which when I read that, I was like, that sounds super Italian. What is going on? He yeah. His family was part Italian. Oh. And a man named Paul McGee. So while Joe Doherty was in this squad, he was engaged in various activities, including sniper attacks and smuggling explosives. His group came to be called M60 because of their usage of the M60 machine guns, which when I looked up the M60 machine guns, because I was kind of curious what it was, it's one of those fucking gnarly guns that has, like, you can carry it, but there's also, like, put it on a tripod, and it has one of those, like, belts of bullets that just get, like, fed through, and you, you, so you know, like, those scenes in, I think, earlier, I don't know, probably still today, but those, like, really military scenes where you've just got, Mm -hmm. like, hundreds of bullets going through this gun at a time. Yeah, yeah, like it's Rambo. (laughs) Exactly. So these guys would basically like glow, go and like blow the shit out of places and people with these guns, allegedly. On April 9th <laughs> of 19, <laughs> on April 9th of 1980, the M60 gang lured the Royal Ulster Constabulary, mm-hmm. which is basically the police. <laughs> I was going to say this is very fancy. Royal Ulster Constabulary sounds like a Clue character in like a new version of Clue to me. <laughs> I'm going to refer to them as Ruck because I don't feel like saying Royal Ulster Constabulary over and over. Yeah. So Doherty and McGee and the other one whose name is Fusco. Fusco. Thank you. They lured the RUC or Ruck into an ambush and killed one officer and wounded two others. On May 2nd, they were planning another attack and had taken over a house where they would open fire from uh to attack the the police but this ambush this this setup had been uncovered by british intelligence and so they're setting up in this house with this heavy artillery and are uncovered by british police and so up rolls a bunch of police cars and so a car comes to the front of the house and another car carrying five members of the special air service comes up to the back of the house. As they exit the car, 
the men in the house of the IRA open fire with an M60 machine gun from an upstairs window. They hit Captain Herbert Westmacott in the head and shoulder, and he was killed instantly. And he was the highest ranking member of the SAS killed in Northern Ireland. The remaining SAS members at the front of the house open fire, or rather return fire, but they were forced to withdraw. And they capture McGee at the rear of the house while he was trying to prepare escape in a transit van with three other members who remained inside the house. And so they deployed more security forces to the scene. And after a brief siege, the remaining members of the IRA unit, including Joe Doherty, they surrendered and were taken into custody. In May of 1981, Joe Doherty's trial and the other members of M60 began, and this included three counts of murder. So the the uh, Herbert Westmacott that they had just killed in the siege, the officer that they had killed during the ambush, and another one, I couldn't quite figure out who that was supposed to be. Okay. So I have to editorialize for just a moment to say that Joe Doherty sounds like a scrappy motherfucker. This guy, while he was in prison, he and other members of the IRA took a prison officer hostage at gunpoint. And this is this is my favorite part of this whole story. Wow. So they take an officer hostage at gunpoint, get out of their cells, and take multiple other officers and visiting lawyers. They call them solicitors. I think those are the same things. Again, not from the UK, not from Ireland. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, So they take these officers and these lawyers hostage, put them in cells, and take all of their clothes. They then put on the officers' uniforms and the uh, visitors' clothing and start making their way to break out of the prison. I was going to say, this is what you see on, like, TV shows and movies. This is, like, Orange is the New Black, like... Literally. I was just about to say, it's like Prison Break. Did you ever watch Prison Break? The first season I saw of it. Okay, way back yeah. when it first was on. Honestly, the first season was the only good one. Oh, well, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. You're done. Uh, and he was gorgeous. Oh, God. Wentworth Miller. So hot. Okay. <laughs> so, they are holding an officer at gunpoint. They've put on officer uniforms and civilian clothing, and they are trying to make a break out of this prison. To get out of the prison, they had to make it through a series of three gates. So they get to the first gate, and they trick the guard, take him at gunpoint, and make it to the second gate. As they approach the second gate the guard recognizes one of the prisoners and runs into an office and presses an alarm button. But the prisoners take the opportunity of this and bust through the second gate, and they are beelining for that third gate that they need to get through to make it out of the prison. An officer at this outer gate um, attacks them, trying to stop them from escaping, but they overwhelm him and they make it out of the prison. So they bust out of this prison and they start running toward the parking lot because there are two cars there waiting for them. So this was like orchestrated by the IRA to get these men out of prison. So they're running for these cars that are waiting for them in the parking lot when an unmarked ruck car, so police, rolls up and opens fire on the escaping prisoners. They exchange fire. I wasn't able to see if anybody was injured at this point, but the men make it to the waiting cars and they escape. Oh my god. Yeah. Two days later, Doherty was convicted in absentia, which basically means that he was tried and convicted while not being present. And I would be interested if a lawyer 
or somebody who knows the legal system could maybe talk about this or send me some info um, in a little bit better detail. But from what I read, being convicted in absentia is perceived by some countries, human rights organizations as a human rights violation, because it's basically like, we're going to try and convict you without you ever having like gone through the trial kind of thing. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, well, we've decided you're guilty of murder, is is my, the impression that I get of the trial in absentia of Joe Doherty. Mm-hmm. So Doherty, at this point, is convicted of murder and is at large. Doherty escapes across the border into the Republic of Ireland, and from there gets a fake passport and travels to the United States. Wow. So he's a fugitive from Ireland, wanted for murder, for the murder of Westmacott, and is labeled as a terrorist, as an IRA terrorist by the British government. He okay. makes it to the United States. He's in he's in New York, living in Brooklyn, and for a period of time in New Jersey as well, with a girl that he was dating. And he was also working in construction and also as a bartender at a bar named Clancy's in Manhattan, which I would be interested to know if that's still there. I should have looked that up. So during the time during this time, the hunt for Doherty continued and flyers of his face and his face on the news were kind of like going up everywhere. And during an interview, Doherty says, everywhere I went, I was seeing my face on the wall. That face was even starting to scare me. I said, let's get this guy arrested. So he's like starting to feel like the the kind of walls are closing in around him. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read a quote from the New York Times article. When Joe Doherty set up, so he was a bartender, right? So when Joe Doherty set up a round of beers at Clancy's Bar in Manhattan on June 28th, 1983, the customers, actually FBI agents, drew revolvers and placed him under arrest. He was in. He was imprisoned at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, and they planned to extradite him to Ireland to stand trial for his crimes. Doherty, at this point, contended that he was immune from extradition because the killing was a political act, stating, it w- this is a, a quote from him, it was an operation that was typical of all operations, where we set up an ambush of a British military convoy. It is a war and this was a military action. Federal judge John E. Sprizzo, S-P-R-I-Z-Z-O, Sprizzo? That sounds right. Okay. That judge (laughs) ruled in Doherty's favor, stating that he could not be extradited as this was a political offense. The Department of Justice then attempted to have him deported. So I guess extradition and like deportation for illegal entry into the country are two separate things. So the Department of Justice was like, okay, well, if we can't extradite you, we're going to deport you. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really, I'm sure there's like a good explanation for why the United States was so like, yeah, let's get him out of here. Why we were so eager to support the British Empire with this. I guess we were, you know, more allies with them than Northern Ireland at the time, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So Doherty is like, okay, well then I am claiming, so they're going to deport him. So now he's like, all right, now I'm going to claim political asylum, which basically is like, I will face harm or mistreatment if I am deported back to my home country. And in theory, we're not supposed to allow that to happen if it's true. 
again, mm-hmm. this guy just seemed like this guy seems like he has he's like very savvy. He's very savvy. He's got like nine lives. Anytime somebody thinks, okay, then we're gonna do this, he's like, actually, I have thought of that and now I'm claiming asylum. By the way, while this is happening, this is a, just a funny little side note that cracked me up. While this is happening, he started to become what several articles referred to him as a, I think this is French, so I'm sure that I am going to mispronounce this, <laughs> but it he was referred to as a cause célèbre, which is a, a person or an issue that attracts a lot of public attention. So he was getting a lot of attention at this point in the United States. It sounds like cause for celebration. It does, kind of. So... <laughs> A lot of people in Philadelphia, like according to one of the articles I read, like thousands of people were petitioning to have him released from prison for a day so that he could lead the St. Patrick's Parade, St. Patrick's Day Parade as Grand Marshal in Philadelphia, wow. which is just hilarious to me. The Justice Department did not allow that to happen. Yeah, I imagine they did, though. I know, right? They were like, sure. I mean, honestly, some of the fucking articles I've read lately about the insurrection at the Capitol and they're like, sure, go on your trip to Mexico. Oh. Okay. So in June of 1988, the attorney general overturned the earlier decision and said, we're going to deport him. But then the attorney general got replaced and the new attorney general was like, actually, let's reopen that case and see if he can claim asylum. Suspish. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what was going on there. So at this point, he's getting a lot of press and over 130 Congress people were sympathizing with his case. They were sort of saying this man was a soldier who killed an enemy soldier in the line of duty. We cannot deport or extradite somebody because it's not he's not a murderer. He is a soldier. And just to kind of give an example for how much sort of like support he was getting from people in the United States, in 1990, the New York City Council renamed the intersection of Pearl and Park South Streets in Lower Manhattan, Joseph Dougherty Corner. And this was really noteworthy because typically streets are only renamed to honor people who are deceased, who had a really significant connection to a local community. So it was really uncommon that they would do it for somebody who was alive and like not even from the area. And kind of controversial. Yeah, and also controversial. So in August of 1991, which is approaching a decade since he had fled fled Ireland and was arrested in Manhattan, he's been in jail for most of this time. I don't know. I didn't finish that sentence. So I'm going to go to my next sentence. In January of 92, the Supreme Court overturned the case in a five to three decision and Doherty's deportation started to get underway. Again, during this time, he was getting a lot of attention in the United States and a lot of sympathy, particularly from Irish Americans. And Martin Galvin, who was an Irish American lawyer, who was, I guess, kind of a predominant lawyer, and he was also a publisher, he had this really interesting quote that kind of puts the argument into perspective. So Martin Galvin said, how can America celebrate George Washington, who won freedom for America by fighting the British crown, and betray Joe Dougherty into the hands of the British crown for fighting for Irish freedom? Right? Hmm. Yeah. So, interesting argument. I don't know what side I land on. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, it's, I think it's really complicated. It's, yeah, it's very complicated. It's tricky, and there's, you know, life at stake, and 
Yeah. Doherty in February of 92 was deported to Northern Ireland, despite many pleas from Congress to delay his deportation, including pleas from the mayor of New York and the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, which I do not know what that means, but I'm assuming that comes with a really big hat if you're the Cardinal Archbishop. Like, because, right, the higher up you are in the church, the bigger your hat. That's kind Absolutely. Of the rule. I feel yeah. like this hat would be very large and it would have like accents of red on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime I hear Cardinal, I just assume they're wearing red somewhere in their vestments. Right. It has to be yeah. an accent color. Otherwise, you got to change the name. Yeah. <laughs> You're, I, right. Cardinal is red. So when he was deported, he was returned to the prison he had escaped from more than a decade earlier, which I just think is like a weird turn of fate. On April 10th of 1998, the Good Friday Agreement was signed, which was the set of agreements I mentioned earlier that had ended a lot of the violence related to the Troubles. The Good Friday Agreement resolved issues, quote, relating to sovereignty, civil and cultural rights, decommission of weapons, demilitarization, justice, and policing. So I've mentioned that just to show that it is possible to get the government to agree to demilitarization. I don't know how that particular one turned out, but it's possible. It's possible. Both the British and Irish governments committed to the early release of prisoners serving sentences in connection with the activities of paramilitary groups, provided that those groups continued to maintain complete and unequivocal ceasefire. And so they started reviewing the cases of the people who had been put in prison as a result of IRA activity. And on November 6th of 1998, Joe Doherty was released from prison. All totaled, he spent over 23 years of his life in prison, which, uh, yeah, I think I've made my feelings on imprisonment pretty clear. Yeah. After his release, though, Doherty became a community worker who specialized in helping disadvantaged youth. And this was a quote from one of the articles that was written while he was imprisoned and was awaiting one of the many trials and cases that he was involved in um, that I really liked. He said, the IRA has a strict policy that civilians and non-combatants are not targets. Whether you're an Irish flag waver or a British flag waver, you've got to realize that you can't blame 800 years of violence on Joe Doherty. So he was basically saying like, Yes, I was involved in violent conflict, but you can't blame 800 years of the actions of 800 years of history, or rather the results of 800 years of history and oppression and violence on me. Right. Which I think, again, there, there is valid that I think there are valid aspects of that. Yeah. In a 2015 interview with NBC News, Doherty, who was 60 at the time, was taken to the site where Westmacott had been killed. And was quoted as saying, I walk by the spot where he was killed when I go up to Tesco and do my shopping, he told NBC News. I stop and do a prayer for him, for his soul. It's all I can do. Was it all worth it? I don't know. Probably yes and no. And Doherty was like a really notorious or like well-known figure in Ireland during and after the Troubles. But of course, as... Time marches on, people start to sort of like forget and not have those cultural connections. And so even though he still speaks to the youth today, they he there's an article where he like goes to speak to a youth center and he says, nobody knew who I was, even though like, mm. you know, 10 years prior, everyone knew who he was. 
he should essentially be like a historical figure. Yeah, yeah. So he does still speak to the youth of today. And I'm going to close with one of his quotes that I liked, where he says, I want, he says, use, I want use to have an opportunity to make an informed choice. You're going to come to a stage in life and look back and say, it wasn't worth it. And so he is sort of reflecting on the the violence and saw it at various points as sort of a, a necessary evil, a an aspect of war and conflict and fighting against oppression, and and still, you know, is a human being and has a lot of regret over the violence that happened. And I just think it's it's so interesting because you know, so many cases like this are still happening today, will still happen in the future. And we really only like sanction killing when we're like, yes, this is part of a war. And because a lot of people like didn't classify this as a war and just like saw them as civil unrest and individual actors who were like killing, bombing, hurting people. Um, there's a lot of debate over, you know, whether his actions were justified or not, and whether he is a killer or whether he was a soldier in this in this conflict. What I think is really interesting is, again, I, I mentioned that I went to Belfast a couple of years ago, and the troubles, as I mentioned with the peace walls, they the gates still close every night. It's it's really interesting to me how the country has dealt with that history. Because if you take a tour around Belfast, you will see all of these murals. You will see people who have like painted and graffitied and written all over the peace walls. But you'll also see like plaques on various corners that say things like, you know, um, on this date, you know, this area was bombed, you know, 13 people died or whatever. You know, that history is, they have handled it in a way that is really different from how I think we handle history in this country, where we tend to go like, okay, let's box that up and put it in a museum. They literally, like, the history of that is sort of like written into the entire geography of that city or, uh, you know, and I can only speak to my experience in Belfast taking a tour of that. So again, if you live in Belfast and you're like, disagree, but I just think it's so fascinating that like we would have taken all of that and like put it all in one museum and sort of like erased that history, which I think is, I don't know which is correct, but I just think it's so fascinating to see how they have set like made those spaces about the history that happened in that period of conflict. And it's just interesting to think about how, I don't know, does that keep it sort of like alive in people's memories in a way that allows that sort of conflict to never go away or does it allow for people to like not forget the tragedy and not forget that when we deny people their rights then conflict will arise I don't know I just think it's really interesting how those how different that is from the way I think we would have handled that and the way we tend to just kind of like push our history into museums and and textbooks and kind of go everything's fine now you know it's just very very different that's that's a really good point. I wouldn't have even like came to that conclusion, but I that is kind of how this country seems to do it. Or yeah. the maybe Western world, I don't know. But it's like I think people do it because they think, yeah, you know, you're gonna take this traumatic experience or this this thing and we're gonna take it out of this area, we're gonna put it someplace where it's safe to look at, and then we're gonna clean this up and and, and you know, move on. But 
yeah, you know, the trauma we, we really still sanitize exists. our history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the trauma yeah. still exists in that space. I mean, for the people who it affected. And yeah. I think by having like that, that space have like that plaque or that memorial or whatever it, it might yeah. be having it there, I think honors the, the people that, that either lost their lives or the, the experience that happened there. And it honors the lives of the people who are affected by it in a way that's totally. not like, you know, you d- didn't happen here. Let's just move on and, and forget about it. Cause you, you don't forget about it. It just, right. That doesn't do, that doesn't do anything for the healing process. In my opinion, you know, as long as it's totally. respectful. And I think that like that, like, you know, those plaques or whatever are like next to a shopping market or whatever. And so I just think it's interesting to think about it doesn't allow it doesn't allow you to sort of forget about that history. If you're like going to the shopping market and there's like a plaque that talks about like this market was bombed 30 years ago and a bunch of people died or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like I, I, I think it's interesting to think about whether that has a like a positive impact on people reflecting on the choices that have been made in history and the way that people are oppressed and fight back against oppression in a way, like, I I just think it'll, I kind of appreciate it because I think that we are too quick to just go like, well, that's in the past. Let's move on. You know, we're, we're very quick to do that in the United States, I think, in ways that are very detrimental to looking at how history has impl- impacted the current day. And I kind of like that continual reminder of it's important to think about people's rights and the oppression of people so that we don't do that again. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Because without the reminder, it's yep. all too easy for it to just, we, we see it all the time. We see it totally. all the time. When you don't remember, when you try to forget, when you don't have to see it every day, when you don't have to see it at all, it's like it doesn't exist. And then when totally. something happens, it's like, what are you talking about? but it's like that's what people want to do they want to bury their heads in the sands to protect themselves and it's all too easy for the wrong people to take advantage of that um yeah that mindset yep so that is the story of joe doherty that inspired the episode the troubles of law and order that was great thank you i hope i did okay again if i got anything wrong think i tried i tried really i you know the minute i started researching the case i was like oh fuck i have to like talk about <laughs> like irish history <laughs> and that is not my area of expertise so i hope i did okay and if not i will happily correct anything next time if you tell me yeah anyone out there if you have any information please share it to me as a, an outsider who also doesn't have a lot of experience in this sort of uh world or knowledge about it i thought it was very clear and and, uh thank you i applaud you i allowed you 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 allowed me do should we rate the episode oh yeah 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 okay what do you think Um, what would be your grades okay for watchability god i'm gonna give it like a d yeah it was not great it was not great it was confusing it was riddled with like a lot of prejudicial remarks about people and that whole no um <laughs> it just wasn't an enjoyable episode really the only and enjoyable was, part at all was the pub yeah yes honestly because i was kind of like weird comedy comic relief in the middle of a yes very stupid episode i thought yeah okay sorry keep going no <laughs> and then my uh rating for or my grade for the like how they handled things 
in comparison to the actual crime, you know, they they have a character that, you know, has a lot of similarities. So, yeah, great job there. But in in terms of how they handled the a lot of issues that they brought up in the episode. Mm hmm. D again. <laughs> like, I don't think they really did any. They talk about, you know, all these different um organizations. They don't really go into detail about who they are. Like the IRA is sort of there but why they don't really provide a lot of context okay i think i would second that i i will say sometimes when i am not the episode recapper i kind of like put the episode on so that i like have a sense of it and then like research the crime mm-hmm. and this ep- and and if the episode is gripping or like enter you know but this one was just like not only is this like not well done it's also just not interesting like it no it didn't do character development the the storyline was disjointed and not engrossing so i'm gonna i'm gonna side with you and give it a d for both watchability and it's gone so i remember looking at the when we first started the first season i was like okay how many episodes are in the first season i was like oh wow 22 that's gonna be that's a lot and here we are here we are so everyone out there listening the very best thing that you could do for us, if you like our show, which I hope you do, is to rate us and review our podcast on any platform that you use to listen to our episodes. It would mean like the world to us. And tag a friend, tell them if they're if they're interested in true crime in any way, tag them, let them know that they should listen to our show, yank their phone out of their hands and just <laughs> subscribe them to our podcast. And Find us on social media. Interact with us. That's what we really are here for. We don't want to just be talking at you. We want this to be a conversation. (laughs) So you can find us on Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We would love to get any kind of mail from you. Anything we've gotten so far has just delighted us beyond belief. Yes. So feel free to send us anything, even if it's just a note to say hi. And if we have permission to air it and read it, oh, yeah. please give us permission. We'll reach out to you, of course. But yeah, if yeah, you yeah. think it's something, yeah, just let us share it. If you, yeah, if you, um, if you write us an email, l- Please include whether you're okay with us reading it on the air. I think it's funny that we're saying on the air like it's live, but if you're okay with us reading it on the podcast, specify that or not, and also give us your pronouns so that we can refer to you correctly. Oh, yes. We also just set up a new website, which is rippedheadlinespod.com. It has more information about us if you want to learn a little bit more about us. And we'll be posting future merchandise there and have info about like newsletters and things like that. So check that out. Yes. And oh, also, we've been talking about this lately. If you are a podcast out there, if you're a podcaster, you know a podcast, you're a fan of one, and you think that we should collaborate with them or, you know have them on our show in any way in either direction just message us message them if you're in touch with them put us in touch together let us know lots of touching if you specifically (laughs) like my dream right now i would love to have sinisterhood on our podcast so if you're sinisterhood if you're listening to this come on down come on (laughs) you're the next contestant on the prices right come on down um but uh yeah if you love sinisterhood if you talk to them all the time Tell them they should collaborate with us uh, because that would be a lot of fun. I would love to have them on. And um, for now, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks a lot. See you later. See you next week. Goodbye.